What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, joined as usual by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And to join us as we wrap up Glenn Cook's Water Sleeps is, of course, returning special guest, the one, Jared Livingston. Thanks for coming, Hello. Jared. <laughs> I had a absolutely mind-blowing experience finishing this book, as I'm sure many of our listeners did. So let's just get right down to it. Drew, my brother totally forgiven for making me start this series. <laughs> what the hell just happened? Well, uh, so for last week's episode, which was actually several weeks ago for us, uh, in case you haven't listened to our 100th uh, celebration episode or, or seen our social media posts, we are re-recording this episode because Drew screwed up <laughs> and lost his audio. Uh, so, uh, so several weeks ago now, we read the first, I believe it was the first 52 chapters of Water Sleeps. And now we are picking back up where we left off and finishing off the book. And it picks up in the Grove of Doom, where Sleepy finally affects her trade. Uh, she gets the first Book of the Dead from Uncle Doge and trades it to Narayan Singh for the, uh, the Nyungbao Key. Which, as they are traveling south, um, they slowly discover is in fact a Golden Deceiver pickaxe that does work to open the Shadow Gate. Uh, while Sleepy and company are traveling to meet up with the other half of the Black Company uh, elsewhere, um, uh, good old One-Eye has a stroke and survives, but is greatly reduced. They do eventually meet up south of the Donda Presh, outside uh, you know, the ruins of Overlook and Kialun, and we discover there that Tobo has been learning some lessons from... Uh, goblin and one eye over the last little while and is in fact a sorcerer himself and so as Soulcatcher figures out what's going on and heads south with mogaba the uh the black company heads up into the plane uh they try one last little ambush on Soulcatcher, which doesn't quite work Soulcatcher captures the daughter of night and narayan singh while the company makes their escape onto the glittering plane the company arrives at the fortress with no name and heads down uh, with the help of a prisoner of war, Suvrin. Uh, they right Shivetya's throne, save him from falling into the abyss, and head on down into the ice caverns to awaken the captured. But not only that, they have some other things to do first. Tobo gets a, a hare and goes on down the stairs even more, where he encounters the tomb of Kina. Goblin and Sleepy go after him and do save him, but in, in the process, Goblin sacrifices himself to let the others get out alive. Sleepy then returns to the ice caverns, goes further in where she finds the Books of the Dead and burns them. She is uh, rescued with some, some golem food, some golem mana from Shvetya, and the Black Company find out that they they have to go on across the plain where they come out in another world entirely the land of unknown shadows from whence came the young bow and that's where we're left at the uh the end of this book <laughs> what a ride we had for the second half of this book gentlemen this series 
has completely up and changed on me. The second half of Water Sleeps, to me, reads like an entirely different book from the previous eight. <laughs> like, for me, it, it, where it really started, even though we, we got this technically at, uh, at the end of part one, it was One Eye Stroke, which, um, you know, I, I honestly thought that, that the remainder of this book was going to be some battle with Soulcatcher, which ends on a cliffhanger as they finally open the Shadow Gate and they begin their journey to find the captured. But, I wow, I was wrong. Delightedly wrong. It was good. The, pa I am <clears throat> the so pace in this one... The pace in this one is unlike any other spot in this series thus far, I feel like. Besides some... You know, some smaller particular sections in the earlier <laughs> books. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because both She is the Darkness and Water Sleeps, uh, you know, we, we covered in two episodes, did basically exactly half of the book each time. And, and there are some similarities in the structure of them, but the pace, especially in the second half, is much different in Water Sleeps. In, in She is the Darkness... Uh, in both of them, they end with them going up onto the plane, right? But in She is the Darkness, the second half, most of the second half is them spent chilling, basically, outside of Overlook. And only in the last 50 pages do they actually go onto the plane. Here, a significant portion of the, like, probably a good quarter, maybe over a quarter of the book, is spent on the plane, in the fortress with no name, dealing with Shavetya and the captured and Kina and then going on across to the land of unknown shadows. And I, I think that makes the pacing a lot better here. Cause I know that was a complaint I had with she is the darkness where I, I thought the pace of that book was really disjointed. It was very fast paced through the first half and then slowed way down in the second half. Yeah. I remember thinking at the end of <clears throat> our discussion on water sleeps part one, that, they're already here, like being surprised that they've already come this far at this yeah. point in the book. Yeah, I mean, like for me, for myself, going into part two, it's just suddenly we were bef like we were through the shadow gate almost before we even knew what was happening. Yeah. Uh, this this journey through the the glittering stone was what it's about what I expected it to be. But the next thing I wasn't ready for was the discoveries of the of the bodies of Big Bucket and um uh his oh my god his bodyguard Sindawe Sindawe uh, no uh, so. Oh, oh, uh, Big Bucket's Nyungbao bodyguard. Yeah, the Nyung Yeah, that wasn't Sindawe. That right, was, um, guy was. Yes. I'm drawing a blank on the name. This yeah, I like, am too now. It's five, been six so weeks long. ago for us here. <laughs> um, yeah, it was... Okay. It'll come to us. It'll come the to cat us. cat just slammed open the door <laughs> of the Mia. <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was hurting for Sleepy when she found her adoptive father's corpse, you know, for, for all intents and purposes. I hurt for her again when she broke down on, on seeing the body of the Nguyenbao bodyguard. You know, for, even for someone as, like, religious as she is, which... Uh, it's, it's kind of a turnoff for me in some characters. In some ways, I found myself able to ignore that with Sleepy. And I was hurting in this moment from one human to another, with another. Some powerful writing and powerful plotting on Cook's part here. Like, to place these revelations and these corpses here just as we are on the road to saving the Black Company for real, I thought it was really some excellent stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's... One of those things that makes the Black Company special, you know, is 
is the bond that develops uh, among the characters and and even even characters who aren't necessarily part of the company but are with the company characters like uh, uh Yen Din Duke who is Bucket's bodyguard um, um and 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 characters like Willow Swan uh, you know who who find their fates entwined with the black company but aren't technically brothers um and but there's there's this uh how do you call it like this ingrained importance in brotherhood and friendship uh within the company that anybody who is in the company kind of almost naturally extends to those close to them you know and sarah sarah's the same way she's not with or she's not of the company but she's with the company and she becomes extremely important to everybody in the company even though she's not, you know, a sworn sister. It's probably, a lot of that is probably because we're getting these from the point of view of analysts for the most part. And so they're going to be portraying the company as, you know, all these characters that they don't want to forget and at least get their story down, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure there is there is a lot of that going on, but there are things, you know, like the way Bucket took the time to, you know, clearly Bucket's not an analyst, he's just another guy in the company, but he has he has formed that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. Um and and I I love the sort of heartfelt nature to to the relationships between um members of the company and between company brothers and those outside. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, still sticking with style, we have this lore bomb that we got from yeah. Morgan in chapter 67, I think yeah. it was. Uh, 16 Shadow Gates. We have other worlds entirely being introduced. It suddenly just, ex- this whole entire universe just exploded in a way I was not ready for at all. At all. You know, it was, that and, alone is cool. Yeah, and in typical Glenn Cook fashion, he, he, it it may be, you know, we don't really know. Like, are they really 16 worlds, 16 different worlds? Or is it one world at 16 different times in its history? Because they get down onto the, you know, off the plane into the land of unknown shadows. And the landscape is exactly like it is outside of, you know, uh, Kialun beyond the Dawn Depression. It's like, um, what's, so what's the deal? Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Deal? I mean, Glenn Cook knows, but the analysts don't necessarily. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then we arrive at the caverns and holy crap, boys, I had my feet just swept right out from beneath me. I, I was getting some heavy Raiders of the Lost Ark vibes out of nowhere, and I will not complain about that. Um and, and, and rather than, like, relying on the interplay between characters and politicking and complaining, which is a huge staple of, that I would not have in any other, th- any, any other way here, we had the planning. Things were just happening, happening, happening all of a sudden. This is the book I've been waiting to read, Drew. This one right here. I said this <laughs> a lot during our episodes on She is the Darkness, and it's on full display here. This is what I like to read. It was just, oh, I, I love this kind of fantasy. Yes, it's it's so good. Hmm. It's so good. I I don't know, and I feel like possibly because this is sleepy as the narrator, as the analyst, um, we get a lot more of Glenn Cook's 
more formal writing style, especially in the second half of this book when we start getting onto the plane and, and into um, circumstances that challenge Sleepy philosophically and theologically. Uh, you know, she she has some of these musings, and, and she she talks with um, uh, Master Santarexita about the the theology and mythology of the plane, and <laughs> and uh, and then we have more of these scenes where she gets to speak kind of retroactively and and wax rhapsodic a bit. Um, I and I love that. And then of course, you know, when you you know you mentioned actually getting to the to the cavern and we have <laughs> sleepy showing her research and quoting Mergen word for word in chapter 84 golden caverns where old men sat beside the way frozen in time immortal but unable to move an eyelid madmen they some covered with fairy webs of ice as though a thousand winter spiders had spun threads of frozen water above an enchanted forest of icicles grew downward from the cavern roof. So Mergen described it once upon a time, decades ago. The description remained apt, though the light was not as golden as I expected, and the delicate, delicate filigrees of ice were denser and more complex. Like, you know, she she gets to take what Mergen said and then jump off it and, and retain this, this like, uh, you know, powerful narrative voice uh, with... with the the weight of mythology behind it. Nice. And I'm also going to do something I, f I totally uh, didn't do the first time around when recording this episode. I'm going to have you save that mm. quote, Drew, and I'm going to have you repeat it again right before my final draft entry. Sound good? Oh, okay. All right. Sound good? All right. Yeah. Boys, the humor. We, we still have to discuss yes. the humor. We have done this so many times with Glenn Cook, but I'm still returning to it. It's shining. Of course it's shining. Not unexpected, obviously. Entertaining to read. Mergen's advice to Sleepy about Suverin. Throw a lip lock on his love muscle. I mean, <laughs> Cook has this, this undeniably poetic way with terrible words i just i i had this immature teenage like guffaw at that line and there were other throwaway moments too like uh cl like little cleverly written lines describing mother goda you know saying how she had never been wrong except for the one time that she thought she might be wrong <laughs> yeah you know? just yeah <laughs> it never feels forced no it does not you're absolutely right you're absolutely right i i i love the uh uh the way Sleepy herself shows her sense of humor, because she is not the crass, um, you know, she's she's not the the one-eye type. She can be cynical and sarcastic, but she does so in, like, a clean manner. Like, I had this one quoted um, when she's talking with Suverin, and she tells him that they're going to go up on the gl glittering plane, and he's like, why? And she goes, for the same reason the chicken crossed the road, to get to the other side. <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, and then uh, there, there's another quote when they're up on the plane, and and she said, um, My natural pessimism went almost entirely unrewarded. Had Iqbal's boys not discovered the wonders of snowballs, I would have had nothing to complain oh about goodness. at all. <laughs> okay. I forgot about that part. Oh. Like, in one line there, you you get such a great mental image of, like, you know, children like pelting each other with snowballs and like running around and generally annoying all the adults in the middle of this like, glittering plane. desperately dangerous <laughs> situation <laughs> yeah some, some great situational oh. humor there too yes yeah okay 
Um, I'll wrap up my style points and I'll toss off to see if you guys have anything else you want to say. As a first for the Inking Out Loud podcast in quite some time, I suppose not now that we've recorded, we are after the recording of the 100th episode podcast, um, but we have a uh, we have a question from Mark Geller on Facebook. He asks, oh, how very nice. finished water sleeps, how would you compare slash contrast each of the analysts in the series? And now with the extra future context, I know why he's asking that because Croker is the next book's <laughs> Uh, analyst, cool. Yes. Um, so that was the first half of his question. How would you compare slash contrast each of the analysts in the series? And then after that, in retrospect, how obvious were the changes to that writing style? I, would, I mean, I think... Oh, sorry, Jared, you go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, I was going to say, I really enjoyed Sleepy as an analyst. The style's really smooth to me. And that's probably somewhat due to what Drew was talking about with the change in the more eloquent language that she uses compared to Croker, for example. And that's probably also contributes to the pace of the book. Yeah. Uh, I think, so as far as, like, if I were to rate them here, I would probably give uh, Sleepy, she'd probably end up fourth on my list of five, even though I'm pretty sure the first time around I recorded this, I actually gave her third or second, even. I don't remember what she was the first time, but it's, it's irrelevant. I've, I've gone back to Croker. I've finished the series since then. I would still like us if I were going to rank them, even though that wasn't quite the question, I'll give you some idea. I'd give, you know, I'd go Croker, Lady, Mergen, Sleepy, Case. Interesting. Yeah. The last time we talked about this, I believe you had Mergen as your favorite. Did I? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, um, you know what it was? I think it was because I've, since then I've also re-listened to um, our episode on Bleak Seasons. And she is the darkness. And she is the darkness. And I thought, you know what? Yeah. I don't think Cro- uh, Croker, pardon me. I don't think uh, Mergen is quite up there anymore. <laughs> I'm still, yeah. I'm quite comfortable saying Mergen is my least favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Mergen is probably my least favorite as well. Um, he's, uh, for a lot of the reasons, honestly, that Croker doesn't particularly like Mergen's annals. Um, Mergen does get a little self-absorbed um, sometimes. And, and I don't think there's as much humor in his books. There is some humor, uh, but his books are generally, uh, you know, m- more pessimistic, darker, bleaker, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, you know, especially when he doesn't know um, that Sara is still alive. Uh, he's he's just so depressed and he's addicted to smoke and, and addicted to this emotional solve that he's got with uh riding the ghost and and he gets so wrapped up in his own internal landscape that i i miss a lot of the external company shenanigans that we get with croaker and sleepy and even lady to an extent Hmm. yeah it's almost like uh when Kroger is talking about mergen style it's like glenn cook is really talking about mergen style got a little meta Mm-hmm. I did mm-hmm. like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think... Yeah. I was just going to add that I think Lady is the most fun to read for me. Uh, mm. Depends where you are in the book. The, the opening or, or closing pages? <laughs> Hell yes. <laughs> well, yeah, Hell if we're yes. talking about the last page. Yeah. I, I I do like Lady a lot. She's probably my second favorite after Croker. Yep. Um, There's just no wasted Lady. space with Lady. She's just like straight to the point. Right. She's she's very direct. She's 
no-nonsense in her writing as well as in her demeanor and her actions. And and I think in a, in, in a really clever way, Glenn Cook aligns each of the characters' writing styles with their personalities. You know, where, where uh, Lady has that no-nonsense writing style as she herself is a no-nonsense person. Croker has a style that does delve into nonsense sometimes because that's who Croker is, you know? And, like, and Mergen is incredibly depressed and so a lot of his writing is very like dour and pessimistic you know and then with sleepy she's a more like rigid um uh she's about like self-control and and constantly fighting with her uh um like religious beliefs reconciling them with the world around her and and all of this new information you know about kina and the shadow gates and you know, and all sorts of stuff there, and and that comes through in the way she writes uh, her book. It's it's very methodical, and it moves in a logical manner. Whereas Mergen's books very much do not move in a logical manner <laughs> because he's going insane. Like <laughs> I, I had far less trouble with She Is the Darkness because that one. I remember saying this during the episode. That one was was he was all over the place again, but he was all over the place spatially, not chronologically. And so, yeah, for I the most it, part, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, for me, it, it, when, when the timeline was switching, it, it, it really throws a monkey wrench into things. But with She's a Darkness, I, I can't say I had too much difficulty following it, which was a huge deal for me in bleak seasons. And Mergen's still like, I think he's my third. I, uh, he's he's up there. He's not not so bad. Sleepy, mm-hmm. you're right. She's a little more rigid. She does have her her moments, but she's not generally a funny person as much as the other ones are. Well, no, I wouldn't call Lady yeah. funny either, really. <laughs> I but think she tries though. Lady tries. Rubber. I think uh, I'll. Off on her. I think I'll enjoy Mergen more on a reread with the full yes. with the understanding the of the full context. Yeah, I can see that being the case. So much like Bleak Seasons. I mean, I said it on our on our episode for that book, but that is of all the books in the series, the one that benefits from a reread the most. Once you understand what is actually going on and why in that book, because you don't really get any answers. You get an answer of, like, on a baseline, what is happening there, but you don't really know what it is, who's doing it, why it's happening, and you get all that information in uh, She's a Darkness, Water Sleeps, and Soldiers Live, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, we, we learned some things even here in, in Water Sleeps about um, how... Uh, Shvetya may have been involved in in things there, and uh, you know it's it's just another example of why this, e- even though it's scaled down in a lot of ways, this is an epic fantasy. Uh, you know, it's not the Wheel of Time with four point two million words in it, but it still has a lot of stuff working in the background that comes to light down the road. Mm. One more thing I would add about <clears throat> the narrators is I think what they all have in common is nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, okay. to an extent, um, and and they have different relationships with it. Like Mergen's nostalgia is heavily uh, leaning toward his like brief Halcyon time with Sara after mm-hmm. Dejagore, before the the night of the Deceiver raid. Sleepy's nostalgia is viewed as like a dangerous thing where 
her memories are all of bad things, and she wants to avoid dwelling on the memories. Croker and Lady have more complicated, um, you know, relationships with this kind of nostalgia with Croker. It's about remembering his, his fallen brethren, and there's this bittersweet tinge of sadness to it. For Lady, it's a longing for what she's lost, um, and, and how there's a danger in temptation for what she's lost, you know, where she, she is trying to grow as a person and become better than she was when she was the dark lady, you know, of charm, but she does miss it. She misses the power because that's who lady is. Hmm. Any other style points before we go on with our characters individually? Um, no, I think, uh, I think I'm, uh, ready to go into characters. Let's do it. Jared. Okay, cool. So, obviously, we'll start with Sleepy, being our analyst. Um, I noted a heartbreaking moment for Sleepy at the end of chapter 55. I wrote down the end of the actual chapter on their return to Jaikur. Mm -hmm. I have a quote here. But nothing that I remembered, people or places, good or evil, remained. That past survived nowhere but within my mind, which was the one place I wished that it could die. I mean, like, I don't mean to say at all or even imply that Sleepy has been an unsympathetic character up until this point, but that line crushed me. I felt the weight of that past. It, it has the kind of weight that can only exist in, like, the surreal moment where you realize... Everyone else is kind of just carrying on about their life as usual, while you are there left to remember something in particular. Sleepy is such an excellently written character, even if she isn't my favorite analyst or even in my top three. And it's moments like these that affirm for me that like she is the right analyst for this book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I do know there, there are fans out there who don't love Sleepy. Um... In, in large part because she doesn't have the sense of humor uh, that Croker or Mergen uh, do. But I tend to like her, and it, and it is because she doesn't get wrapped up in herself the way Mergen does, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have complicated and, and painful depths to her. I They just come out more externally in her relationships with other people. I particularly love the way she interacts with Willow Swan. Uh, he has this this casual way about him, this um, irreverent uh, sort of attitude toward life that helps balance Sleepy's kind of quiet seriousness. And I make they I, I think they make a really interesting duo whenever they're talking with each other because I agree with he that. pulls yeah. her out of her shell in some ways and she tempers his ridiculousness in some ways. I think she really smoothly falls into a leadership role with the company. Yeah. Even though she doesn't think she does. Well, of she course. Describes herself. But that's what She's makes like, her I, work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, I think it's Willow Swan in, in the first part of this book when, when he says, oh, so you're the one in charge. And she's like, no, I just plan traps. But really, yes, Sleepy is the one in charge. Like, yeah. Doesn't she try and say Sorrow's in charge or something? I can't remember. Yeah, and, and there is a little bit of the impression that for a while, Sorrow was really the one running the show. Um, that after the Kialun Wars, 
Sleepy was very much beaten down and, and re- ready to, you know, throw in the towel, and Sara was the one who kept the company going. Um, you know, her desire to resurrect Mergen kept the company alive. Uh, but in that overtime, Sleepy kind of got out of a funk, and then we see her at the beginning of this book finally, like, fully stepping into the light and taking over again over the course of this book. I do think... But I I also like that. You know, I I think it's great. It's a great character progression. I do think Sleepy as a narrator here helps you make the jump that, like, several years have passed. A lot of these Black Company books have large time skips, you know, between them. We we go, I think, four years after book one to the beginning of book two. We go six years from the be, uh, end of book two to the beginning of book three. Um, we and then we're we're pretty straightforward until the end of book seven, and then it's like again, it's like four years later between Bleak Seasons and She Is the Darkness, and then it's like thirteen years, you know, between She Is the Darkness and Water Sleeps. Uh, it's, and it's not always handled the same way. Uh, partially, I think that's plotting. Um, it's just like, you want to know more about certain things that happened between books earlier on. Um, or there's less interesting stuff between books. But here, I think he found like a really good balance to strike. Mm. Where you don't need to see the Kialun Wars. He could have written a book about the Kialun Wars, for sure. But you don't need to see it. Because he immediately makes it fun that the new situation that the company is in. We've already seen the company in extended campaigns where they're losing. We don't need to see that again. But we've never seen the company operating like a guerrilla warfare urban campaign of terrorism. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of fun, I mean, Sleepy has this funny moment in chapter fifty-eight where she's disappointed that they never got to use the extensive backstories that she had prepared for everyone. And I stopped to write down, remind us of anybody in particular. Ooh. <laughs> hey, I hey, absolutely. I mean, I am also glad that you brought up Willow Swan because I see what you were talking about. I, I don't know how long ago at this point, Drew, from the time of this recording, how, how Willow Swan does remind you of someone like Matt Cawthon as a character. I suppose maybe Matt Cawthon would be reminding you of Willow Swan since Swan existed first. But I absolutely see it now. I absolutely do see it. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I obviously, I, uh, I read The Wheel of Time before I read The Black Company, so I had that, you know, that in... Yeah, yeah, I was correcting myself where, there. Sorry, to, yeah, yeah. You, but. Um, but but it's it, it it is like Willow Swan. Every every new book we get with him, there are new layers to him. He is like Matt Coffin, that kind of proverbial onion that just you know you can keep peeling layers <laughs> off, and there's something new underneath it. And I I like that. That's one of the reasons why Swan is one of my favorite characters in this series. Yeah, like we we see at the end here. Um, if we want to move into Willow Swan a little bit, um, sure. uh, when when they're about to head up onto the plane and Soulcatcher is coming over the pass at Chiron de Prash and and the the company members are flying all over the place trying to get things ready and everything, and Sleepy realizes she planned poorly 
Willow Swan is the one who's just like, boom, I, I already I already saw it coming. I'm already on it. I've got it under control. Go do your thing. I can take care of it. Like, he, he has that ability to, in a snap, go from, like, you know, happy-go-lucky, sarcastic, funny guy to all serious, all business, uh can run the show very competently himself. And we get further clues of it in this book where uh, after they captured him, the greys that he was running in Taglios, the, the Shadar kind of police force, they start falling apart without the leadership of Willow Swan. Initially, the Black Company thinks he's just a figurehead and that Soulcatcher's the one who's, who's really running the show with the greys. And then they capture him and they're like, oh, wait a second, maybe he wasn't so much a figurehead. Like, <laughs> you know? I don't know. He always kind of got under my skin. I don't quite know why. I mean, like, <clears throat> you know that he enjoyed some of the time with Soulcatcher. Oh, for sure. And he's open about it. Like, I mean, it's, it's hard. Like, that's one thing that surprised me in this book was how quickly he's just kind of welcomed back with open arms especially by sleepy right there's but i think part of it is because the company recognizes the sort of person he is that he was um a he was ensorcelled by soulcatcher and once he yes. realized you know once he came out from under the spell he was like well I have to go with this or I'm going to die horribly. And so he, he chose to just like, as, as is the common metaphor in these books, ride the tiger. He's like, I, I can't get off without the tiger, you know, killing me and eating me. So I'm going to do what I have to do. But that at heart, he is just like a normal, decent dude who's been repeatedly thrown into difficult circumstance after difficult circumstance and uh and and so it's hard for them to carry the abiding grudges that they do against the Radisha or the Prabhendra Dra or Soulcatcher or the Limper uh with him because he doesn't have the the agency and the um the betrayal factor that all the rest of those characters do. Yeah, I mean he's not Mogaba um, level Traitor. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, certainly not. He is not my brother Unforgiven. I, I will say that I think, like, he's a good fit for the Black Company. He's someone that I think would they would normally would normally find his way among their ranks, you know? Yeah, and I do also think it's important that he's not a Black Company brother. Yeah, right. They, yeah. Their, their attitude toward him would assuredly have been different were he a sworn brother and then he betrayed them to Soulcatcher and became her consort and, you know, ran the military police <laughs> to try to hunt them down. Very different situation. Um, that, that bond, that official bond of brotherhood matters one whole hell of a lot. So, mm -hmm. Anything else about uh, Sleepy, gentlemen, or Willis One, before I continue on no, to One Eye? Uh, yeah, let's, I was going to say, we should go on to One Eye because... Okay. Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I was so sad at this point. 
reading this guy. I mean, all of my notes here are in, are in present tense because the first time we recorded this, I had just finished reading the book and I hadn't read Soldiers Live yet. Um, I'm going to have to transcribe here. I, um, I, when I was first recording this, I, I, I wrote down that I got the sense of impending loss that Cook is clearly uh-huh. throwing at us, and he's so good at it. Um, and in a narrative like this one, you expect loss, but it's generally delivered in a quick, like frantic, almost too quick to mourn sort of loss that de- that happens desperately in battle. I wasn't ready to watch this the wasting sickness of someone I cared about as a character by this point, struggling to keep up with everyone and not even like able to voice his complaints anymore in between struggling to move or even communicate. Chapter 60 was powerful. Chapter 60 broke my heart. Um, yeah. And on that subject, I, I totally, actually on the subject, subject of chapter 60, I totally uh, made a note, but I forgot to mention it in our last episode, I think it was in She is the Darkness, uh, my total confusion as to the location of One-Eyes Magical Spear. Right. I was wondering where the hell that thing got off to. Right? So, mm-hmm. when we got up to it right here, I, I wanted to smack myself for forgetting to ask about it previously. It's cool to see it on the page again. But, yeah, one eye. I'm just like, oh, God. It was like... It's like an old dog that's just starting to drag its hind legs around, and you're just like, oh, no. I, how am I going to handle this? Like, you have all this time to get ready for it, and that kind of makes it worse. Oh, it totally makes it worse. I know. I see him. I saw him a minute ago. Drew's pointing back to his kitty. Yeah, just entered the room again. Just opened the door. He's he's uh, he refuses to be left out of this episode. Not in his. Severian's so very emotional about one eye. Right. Yeah. Oh come um, on, we haven't no, gotten the goblin yet. <laughs> I'm I'm right there with you. That that scene with Sleepy finally meeting back up with one eye. You know the this. Uh, like you said, the sense of impending loss, like. The, the fear of the loss and then the relief that he was still there for her. Um, and, and, uh, and then they're, they're kind of grappling with the results of the stroke where he can't really talk, uh, with the same faculty. He, he can't think as, you know, as well as he could. And, and here is, you know, a little bit of a style thing, you know, one of the things I love the most about Glenn Cook, the way he ties emotion into these really, really memorable kind of one-liners, and and how many of them, of course, involve the titles of books, because his book titles are great. But but in that scene, you know, he he's talking with Sleepy, and, and he says, um, "You do what you must, but I have to talk to you again soon before this happens to me again." He spoke slowly and with great care. You are the one. He was tiring, so great was his mental effort. He beckoned me closer, murmured, Soldiers live, and wonder why. Like, the emotion tied up in that whole scene, and then thematically bringing it into that last line, that for most of us, we know is, you know, Unless you were reading this book right when it came out, you know, all way back in the 90s, um, we know that's the name of the next book. And you're like, oh, you know, the same way we got Water Sleeps at the end of Sol- uh, She is the Darkness. Yeah. Uh, when when yeah. Mergen, Mergen, you know, whispers it to the Radisha and, you know, he's like, even uh, even enemy rests, you know, but water, water 
or even water sleeps, but enemy never rests. Um, and, and you have this promise, this emotional and thematic promise for what the next book is going to hold. I love that. Hmm. I think a lot of what (laughs) makes it so impactful is that you've had like, what is it? Eight or nine books or something of charming, funny, energetic one eye. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's just... It's, uh, it's like, <clears throat> I found myself thinking about how I was kind of turned off a little bit by some of the interplay between Goblin and One-Eye in the early books, and now I get to this point, and it's, like, crushing. Yeah, you're like, no, don't go away. Yeah. <laughs> I did write down uh, uh, one of the one-liners we got out of One-Eye nearer to the end. Uh, I, I quoted it here. One eye snorted as he talked, his laughter barely under control. And he was right. It was easy. When his tunnel caved in, the wall fell down, and the rest of us charged to the gap and sorted them timberinos out. And Goblin grumbled. <laughs> and about five days later, somebody remembered the miners. <laughs> One eye is just like, somebody was just pl- plain damn lucky to have a friend as good as me to dig him out. Mm-hmm. The old man just wanted to put oh. up a gravestone. <laughs> I, I, I mean... It- it's so much about them in in situations like that. Like it's more than a friendship with them. It, it is, uh, and it's more than a rivalry. It's it's really like true brotherly love between those two guys. Like, and yeah. and of course that makes what happens with One Eye powerful here, and and with Goblin, we'll get to him in a minute. You know, just as powerful, if not more so. You know. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I just realized I was going to explain here why I did one eye as like a, a pseudo terrible mm. uh, mm-hmm. Scottish accent there at the, at, for my first line there. It's because McLeod Andrews, that's how he delivered uh, one eye in the in the audiobook. And that got me on the, the track of, oh my God, McLeod Andrews. I can't believe I forgot to bring this up during our style discussion. <laughs> I am a huge fan of this audiobook narrator. He does another book that we're actually going to be seeing next week as well. He's, uh, he's heavily involved in the Illuminate Files, so just just having that, the, the, oh my god, he made this book so much better than, than it like could have been in the hands of somebody else, who I'm not a huge fan of. But, yeah, I mean, one eye, excellent. I just, I was, I was just so dreading going into the next book on my first read-through of this one. <laughs> oh my god. It's funny, I didn't apply that accent <laughs> until I first heard you do it. Yeah. And not, it really not really fits to me. Yeah, yeah. That always that always amused me whenever uh, like you know I've never done the audiobooks for these, but my cousin Patrick, uh, who's going to be on our Soldiers Live episodes, uh, he's always done the audiobooks, and and he mentioned that they they give One Eye a Scottish accent, and I was like, that's so weird, but hilariously yeah, fitting. Yeah, in, in Goblin's time. got exactly. a bit of, uh, of uh, below the Bible Belt to him. He's he's definitely got some southern oh. flavor in there. Too. Southern twang. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, nice. <laughs> in the same moment too, Goblin's response is uh, not so. The real truth is the tunnel never would have collapsed if this two-legged overripe dog turd hadn't been playing one of his stupid games. You know, I almost <sighs> forgot. I never did get you back for that. You never should have brought it up, you human prune. Damn, you almost went and died on me before I got you paid off. I knew you were up to no good. You had that stroke on purpose, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God. I love that we got more of this, uh, this this interplay between the two of them, that chemistry between the two of them before, you know, the chamber with mm-hmm. Hina. Yeah, so shall we, shall we talk some Goblin? Oh, my God. I don't know if I can <sighs> talk about Goblin. 
<laughs> oh my god. Um, so we, I mean, we've arrived at it. Hands down, what I consider to be the most epic thing, well, I, epic new thing that I've read since we started the podcast back in like October of 2018, the death of Goblin. You know, everything about chapter 89 and chapter 90 was just absolutely amazing. It was more than amazing. I need a new word for it. I'm going to, I don't even, mesmerizing, no, even more than that. I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. As Sleepy was going after Tobo towards Kina's chamber, I was already getting goosebumps. I knew this was going to be something different Right, I was listening. I was wrapped. I was unable to even weld the piece I was working on as, as as she made her sleepy made her way down towards the heat and the stench and the feeling of of, of just endings and the goblin at her side. The entering of the chamber with Kina's avatar right there in the center from the moment that goblin told Tobo, "Don't move. Don't even breathe," or something like that, unless I tell mm-hmm. you to. And in that moment, I was smiling uh, like on Goblin's behalf. I was like, God, dear Goblin, like, why am I so fond of you all of a sudden? And you really are 100% about the Black Company and protecting your brothers, aren't you? You, uh, and then, hit the fan. Yes. Wow. It's, that, it's the culmination of this promise that Glenn Cook had built over the course of the series that, yes, Goblin and One-Eye are... are jokesters and pranksters and and they're ridiculous sometimes and they can be deeply irresponsible with their their black market dealings and their their uh alcohol production and and uh and they're always up to something but when the lives of company brothers are on the line they are deadly serious they will not fuck up like they they will do everything in their power to make sure that those they care about get through, you know, the mess. And here is the ultimate mess, the ultimate moment for Goblin to say, you know, I'm responsible as as a sorcerer for the Black Company. I am responsible for us in this situation. Mm. Let me take the lead. Do what I say and you'll get out, I promise. Yeah. Yeah, I I think like some of it too is the sort of paternal relationship that they have with Tobo here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, for for a lot of this book, they've been working with him behind the scenes, and so I think that really hits home here when he's you know jumping out in front. Yeah, the goblin, you magnificent bastard. The frog-faced man spun, or, or something like that in, in the text, you know, to, to try and quote it, to paraphrase it, as he stabs Kina through with the standard. There's something about that moment, that description, the frog-faced man, something that made me go, oh, no. Oh, no, no. no. Oh, God, put, uh, Cook, please don't do what I think you're about to do. I, I think it was because in that moment, not describing him as Goblin, but the frog-faced man, it kind of, the, the generalized description felt like I got a sort of focal pullback. It felt like the first time we met him in the first book. I knew in this moment that Goblin was going to die and that I was just going to love him for it. Like and then he had the most heroic death I've read in years. You know, the way that even engulfed in flames he's still screaming, run, run. Like I was just the way he melted 
the image of Sleepy and, and Tobo and Centaraxita and Suvrin just scrambling up the staircase, afraid to even look back. That was just some f***ing phenomenal writing. It was whatever, so whatever the opposite is of a writer just throwing in a death at the end of the book just because. This is whatever oh. is the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah. There's so much purpose. Mm-hmm. There's so much power and emotion behind the moment. Like, oh, it, 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 it's fulfilling promises Glenn Cook made in the text and fulfilling promises you didn't even realize he had made. You know? Yeah, yeah I mean, it, this, you know, this may have been a style point, what I'm about to say, but I, I don't think it maybe would have had the same impact during our style discussion as it'll have right now. Uh, saying it while we're the direct in, directly in the center of the pain right here. I've had my complaints about these books in the past, like, quite literally, like hours and hours of them. I definitely saw the value, you know, both in our time and, 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 and you know, for the epic... the fantasy uh, landscape as a whole covering these books I've had many laughs and, and few moments of hurt like a few moments with Sleepy in this book that I already outlined for example but here in the ninth volume I was I like I was ready to go into Soldiers Live enjoy it get ready for an unexpectedly epic ending if Drew your teasing held up to be true but this is where I needed to pause the book and seriously contemplate my expectations like this was downright the most emotional moment I've had reading since we started the podcast because this was the first time I had read this moment you know I'm not kidding I I was it was in this moment that I decided even if I hadn't found anything redemptive about reading these this many books in a, in a series I found to be, you know, overall not quite as engaging as other series are, it was all still worth it for this moment alone. I, I didn't cry when it first happened. I'm pretty sure I cried the first time we recorded this, though, saying that. I yeah. can't <laughs> express the emotion I felt and particularly how unprepared I was for it. Uh, it moved me in a way I wasn't ready to be moved. And for right now, I'd like to raise a toast as a first on the Inking Out Loud podcast since our episode's finishing the Wheel of Time. A toast to Goblin, brother in arms, annoying little <laughs> savior of his loved ones, and outstanding name in the annals of the Black Company. I will miss you, Goblin. Rest in peace, man. To Goblin. I remember thinking if, if this was one of the events that Drew was thinking of to when Rob and I were kind of having some trouble getting through the early books, if this was the moment in the series that Drew was thinking of that would, like, pull us around. Yeah. Drew knows me it well was, enough to know, yeah. Yeah, it was one of them. Um, I, I, I admit, I expected you would be um, more, like, fully on board earlier in the series than... Uh, than it was that you kind of like I know Rob you know for you it, it really was like this moment oh my god it's so much where you're like alright I am 100% on board before this, I was the like the series is worth it you know the first eight books that we covered I was like I can see why this is good and I can see why it's definitely worth our time to be covering this it's just not my cup of tea but as soon as this this second half of Water Sleeps hit around I was just, I came around so hard so hard yeah, like like there were there were moments with both of you guys. Like I, I know both of you really enjoyed book two, Shadows Linker. Mm, yeah. uh, I know there were moments in the White Rose that you guys enjoyed. I know there were moments in in uh, Shadow Games, Dreams of Steel, She Is the Darkness, especially um, for Rob. Uh, but but it, you know it, it did surprise me a bit that it took this long for you to 
Rob, for, for you to fully say, like, yes, I'm on board. But I also knew when you weren't quite there yet, I was like, this is going to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You must have been so stoked to, to begin this episode when we first did it. Oh, man. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, stoked. And, and I'll be honest, you know, if I had known that it would take nine books of the Black Company for you to reach that point, <laughs> I don't know if I would have said, like, we were going to do this on the podcast. I expected Shadows Linger was going to do it. Shadows Linger did it for me. You know, like, I, the first time I read this series, I, I enjoyed the first book, but I didn't think it was all that great. But then I read the second book, and I was like, this, like, Shadows Linger is phenomenal. I'm, I am in. Yeah. I'm in it for the long haul. Yeah, maybe if I had done, like, and, rereads, I would have come around a lot earlier in the series, yeah. This is all just done on audiobook, which I, again, I would never recommend doing as first-time reads. And uh, <laughs> going straight through, right? And just kind of having a hectic schedule with it at times. But yeah, I mean, on rereads, there's a very good chance that I will actually, earlier in the series, be, be, be already saying, yep, this is actually totally my style now. You know, it's an acquired taste, I think. It is. And, and I... Yeah, this is a writing style point, and we've covered this on previous episodes, but there is something to be said, you know, for the fact that uh, Rob, especially, you grew up reading oh my God. modern epic fantasy. Yeah. And this is a very different style of writing, a very different kind of epic fantasy series, you know, from 10, 15 years before the stuff you kind of cut your teeth on. Yeah. Jared, you had a little bit of a different perspective, because I know you, you read a lot of Terry Brooks growing up. Yep. Lord of the uh, Rings. And, yeah, uh, and so there's there's uh, some contextual perspective there, but but Rob, especially, I mean, going from like Harry Potter and Wheel of Time straight into Brandon Sanderson, yep, and then yep. trying to dabbling. rewind, I dabbled a lot, trying to rewind to the <laughs> early '80s, like Terry good that's yeah, I'm not proud of that. That's a, a tough, uh, you know, a tough sell a lot of the time, um, but I'm I'm super grateful that you guys did this, that you have. Come on this journey with me. Oh, hey, you heard my you intro. Know. You are my brother, totally forgiven. This, like, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, this was awesome. Like, just for this that this part alone, like with Goblin. This, oh, so good. <laughs> this was, <clears throat> I'd say, uh, this was the first one in our read through where I jumped ahead, reading into the next book before. We recorded this one. Really? You know. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. We did leave on a bit of a, a like, a, an unfortunate cliffhanger moment, you know, whereas, like, they're in the Grove of Doom right before any trades are made or potential deceptions are undertaken, Yeah, you know, so it was like, I could see how that would be a, a tough... That one and, and probably She is the Darkness when we split it right after they were like a, attacking Overlook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But. Um, so do we have any more character points? Last time I, miscellaneous I bitched a little bit about Sara. I don't think I'll bitch better this time. I just <laughs> I, 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 I'll just say that. And this might piss somebody off who, who particularly likes this character, perhaps in, in the TV show. But this, she reminds me of Chi Chi a little bit. 
I remember saying that last time. It's just like she she started this book so strong and tough and powerful and this epitome of, of feminine strength and determinism. And, and, but the end, she's just freaking out. She's freaking out. And I get it. Yeah, her son's life is in danger. And she's been through so much more than most people are by the time they reach her age. Or even when they're still as young as she is, I should say. But what the fuck does she think happens if she doesn't... If Tobo doesn't do what he needs to do? What? Mm-hmm. I remember tell, uh, saying, call me your f***ing tits. Oh, my God. What are you yeah. just... Yeah. <laughs> like, if, if Kina breaks loose, uh, if, like, he is just going to die with everyone else. Like, this is, the ch- this is his chance to save himself as well, as much as everybody else. Calm down. Sorry, pissed me off. Yeah. Here, I said I wasn't going to bitch about her. I did. I Sorry. I, I bitched about her for, like, a solid minute there. Go ahead. I mean, I'll, I'll do the same rebuttal I, I did last time. You know, like, she is not a Black Company member. She has major trauma in her past already around losing her children, losing her loved yeah. ones. And, and so it's like, I think she she has a very understandable um, character arc in, in in the later parts of this book. But where she started so strong. She, she just changed her. Yeah, I guess it was, you know, But, but it is, it is uh, okay. Sleepy and Tobo are, are correct in their assessment of her character. They're saying like... When it was all theoretical, it was a lot easier for her to be the fire and, and, and the passionate heart of the company, pushing them forward, never giving up. And then when it became real and there started being tangible danger to losing it all permanently, that's when... Sara started struggling. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot to be said about the fact that Tobo is now directly in a lot more danger, having been revealed to be a sorcerer. That, that I mean, she's very validated in that way too. I just, she, mm-hmm. I, I didn't like how she started so powerful and so determined and ended up as somebody who, by the end, was just annoying the shit out of me. But <laughs> it's it's yeah. understandable why she got that way. I, I it's yeah. it's valid. It's just. To me, it's, 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 I agree that it's disappointing and annoying, but totally expected. I just thought she was going to get, I did think she'd kind of have a bigger role. More awesome. And she did not. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't write down anything about Tobo. If you guys want to say anything about Tobo, I saved it all for the next book, which, you know, yeah, we we talked about, we talked about Tobo quite a lot in, in our soldiers live episodes. So I'll, I'll leave that. Cool. Um, uh, shall we go into some miscellaneous points yes. before we do our favorite scenes? Yes. Sure. Um, I, I, I just wrote down how much I loved the snowball scene again. It, this is, oh, man. <laughs> as, a, as your resident Canadian, you know, and a couple of boys that grew up in Colorado, you know, what's up, Drew? Jared, how's it going? I can confirm mm-hmm. that one does not make snowballs with fresh snow, God damn it. <laughs> Fresh snow doesn't compact into snowballs any more easily than sand does. I just this point is so stupid. I always have at least one really dumb point during my miscellaneous. This is it. But fresh snow doesn't. You can't just pick it up and like make snowballs out of it. It's got to. It's got to simmer. You know. It's got to. Takes time. <laughs> that was a really dumb point. Somebody save me. Okay. Okay. Well, I got um. Uh, one of those just kind of enjoyable lines from Glenn Cook. Uh, Santarak Sita chatting with Sleepy. And, uh, and, you know, she says, when you get back to Taglios now, you can establish a mighty reputation by explaining the myths in the words of a being who lived through their creation. You know, this is after they've had Shvetya in their minds. Yeah. And Santarak Sita smiled sourly. 
Great alliteration there, by the way. Hmm. You know better, <laughs> Dora B. Mythology is one area where nobody wants to know the absolute truth because time has forged great symbols from raw materials supplied by ancient events. Prosaic distortions of fact metamorphose into perceived truths of the soul. Like, that's just one of those uh, one of those mm. moments that I I aspire Gorgeous. to writing someday myself. Like where where there's a weight where you read something an author put down, and it's not necessarily like you know any old author can you know, can be like some random person, but it comes across with such authority that you're like. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's like that's a super deep like and and this this does have, you know, there there's some some real like prescience to this statement, but it's not something like totally original, but it comes across that way, you know. I I love that that moment as a reader, and I want to be able to do that as a writer at some point. Touche. <laughs> Touche. Um anyone else before I continue with my last miscellaneous and then we go into our favorite scene uh, i i have one more just a, another hilarious uh moment um <laughs> you forgot on purpose you're as bad as one eye or goblin yes did i just hear my name taken in vain <laughs> one eye's voice punctuated by rasping panting more suitable to a lunger came from the shadows down where the stair intercepted the cavern <laughs> oh one eye i oh, love him eye. yeah love him i have to admit it was almost the instant in to part two when I like literally just fired it up to start with part two when the identity of the white crow suddenly just became obvious to me out of nowhere during one of its many exchanges with sleepy. I had the striking thought, wait, soul catcher uses black crows. Might not the lady as her sister be commanding the white one. And shortly after came this moment when the white crow went sister, sister, and then it flew off. And I just so badly wanted to, face palm right in that moment i might have actually if i wasn't wearing like super charred up dirty welding gloves like i, I did have to reach up to my chest and press the pause function on my headphones that, that that dangles right there just to blankly stare up at the ceiling like oh my god i, I how did i not see this yet it was so odd yeah, it, i missed it too i i think i mentioned this last time it took me way too long to figure out that the white <laughs> pro was lady the first time i read this book yeah and like, it, like right during i think it was during uh she is the darkness part two drew you asked both of us what we thought was going on with that damned white crow now it's clear yeah although it's slightly mm -hmm. changing near the end but yeah it, oh god i'm just i'm so disappointed in myself yeah yeah <laughs> so so uh shall we do favorite scenes i'm down for some favorite scenes let's do it all right rob number three okay um, I'm just going to get my audible mention out of the way really quick, really quick before I go on number three, uh, immediately after escaping soul catcher, getting through the shadow gate, mother Gota's middle finger. Oh, just, <laughs> I, I wish I could sketch for moments like this. I'm just saying that. Um, but my, my true third favorite scene, my third place one, chapter 57, soul catcher and Mogaba back in Teglios soul catcher who gets like the heartburn from that annoying bow dish. Uh, I want to say Mogaba got that terrible, terrible heartburn as well. But then they get mm -hmm. these, that night just is ruined for them. The messages they get from the black company. Soulcatcher's carpet ripping because of uh, God, God Bar Joel Baron. Was that Baron, Baron Dondi? Dondi. Yes, Baron Dondi. Thank you. And Mogaba, you know, being reminded my brother, Unforgiven. It's just, I, 
Oh, and then Baron Dondi's corpse is discovered, right? With a poison fruit and the corpse of his betrayer right beneath him and the note in its mouth. Water sleeps. Oh, just, oh, that chapter was so good. So good. Yes. Okay. Jerry. So, uh, so my number three was when they were ambushing Soulcatcher before going through the Shadow Gate and she dodges the fireball <clears throat> and really this stuck out to me because like all this time i've just been begging for a soul catcher to finally croak and <laughs> here we are once again of course not uh yeah for more of jared's thoughts on soul catcher listen to our 100th episode <laughs> special yeah yeah oh yeah episode sorry not uh, 100th episode yes our celebration yes. of 100th episode special yes yeah, that was. Uh, I think. So, I think I remember that was one of the moments that elicited a physical stand-up reaction from me. <laughs> yes, I love mm. it. Drew, third favorite. Okay, so my third favorite is Goblin's Escape from the Palace. Oh, it's so good. When he is setting a series of traps with the uh, Gangesha statues and it's shadow, shadow, shadow and he lulls Soulcatcher into false sense of security and then he plants oh. one down and it's got three fireballs in it and she just stomps on it and and like I, I love the, the reaction especially when Goblin finally gets back to the warehouse and he's just like totally giddy he's like I can't believe she stomped on it like <laughs> yeah Oh god, oh. Drew! You just you—you you took my second favorite one. I, I, that's why I went oh, oh halfway I? through that because I was reading ahead and like oh yeah, <laughs> that was my second favorite right there. I, I'll be damned if it wasn't just this mischievous glee that I had. There's uh, very evident upon my face when just hearing because I was doing audiobook again. <laughs> Soulcatcher get exactly what she deserves. Ah, just <laughs> it was so good. And yet, yeah, once yeah. again, Jared's sitting here. Why can't she just? Be, get finished off already. Just die yeah. <laughs> already. Uh, yeah. Oh. So that was actually my so, number two. All right. So Jared, your second then? Uh, so mine was Sleepy's conversation with One Eye when he has his mm. soldiers live line. So we oh, kind of already covered it. But sixty. I want to say that was again, if I remember in my previous notes. Yeah. Oh my god. So good. Yeah. Country. Heartfelt, wonderful moment. So. So my my second favorite is the final scene of the book. The wind whines and howls through fangs of ice. It races furiously around the nameless fortress, but tonight neither the lightning nor the storm has any power to disturb. The creature on the wooden throne is relaxed. He will rest comfortably through a night of years for the first time in a long millennium. The silver daggers are no inconvenience at all. Shavetya sleeps and dreams dreams of immortality's end. Fury crackles between the standing stones. Shadows flee. Shadows hide. Shadows huddle in terror. Immortality is threatened. Just once again, Glenn Cook... Flexing on us all, being like, look look at how good I am at writing the final lines of a book. All you plebs. <laughs> oh, he's so good at it. I would do the same exact thing had I had one-tenth of that talent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So this is where I expect you guys are going to hate that we have this established pattern of Rob goes first. <laughs> yep. With his favorite scenes. Because, we know what's uh, coming. It lets me get my very favorite scene of the book out before either of you get to ha ha. And I know neither of you are going to have this as, your, as, as low as your second or third. How can I choose anything besides the heroic death of Goblin? Just chapter 90 in general. Like 89 and 90 were just an entirely different book to me. Because... And, I wrote down at the time, because of this, I am super stoked to jump into Soldier's Live. I can say now, in hindsight, I was super stoked to jump into Soldier's Live because of these two chapters. It was just something else entirely. And I, I, I already explained why previously, so I'll just reiterate. Perfect. Yeah, this, this was mine too. <clears throat> I'm sure Drew is going to throw a curveball and not pick this one. Yeah, just to be different. Spite me for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am. I, I have a different favorite. Oh, okay. I like it. My favorite is the last half of chapter ninety-eight, the second to last chapter in the book, and and this this bit starts with, so it was that the Black Company reached the land of unknown shadows instead of fabled Catovar, and it ends. And I'm going to read the, the ending a little bit here. The captured all returned to us, except for those who died beneath the plain, but even the best of them, Mergen, Lady, the Captain, were strange and deeply changed. Fay, But we were changed as well, by life, so that those of us they remembered at all were almost alien to them. A new order came into being. It had to be. Someday we will cross the plain again. Water sleeps. For now, I just rest, and indulge myself in writing, in remembering the fallen, in considering the strange twists life takes, in considering what plan God must have if the good are condemned to die young while the wicked prosper, if righteous men can commit deep evil while bad men demonstrate unexpected streaks of humanity. Soldiers live. And wonder why. And this this is my favorite scene, not only for just you know the beautiful writing, but for the uh, the, the meta contextual stuff around it. It's in the middle of that. After water sleeps, there's a page break. You know, a, a three three stars on the page. And then the second bit ends with soldiers live and wonder why. Here we have Glenn Cook once again embracing this thematic slogan thing he's been building. We have these two bits. One ends with the name of this book. The next ends with the name of the next book. On top of that, this whole bit is Glenn Cook basically giving a giant middle finger to every creative writing professor <laughs> who said, show, don't tell. He's like, I'm going to tell. And it's going to be beautiful, and you can deal with it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no one tells like he does. So <laughs> it, it's it's uh, it's just mm, I love it so much. the The emotion buried in it, the teasing at what you can find out in the next book, and then and then just the the wordplay, the the ability to craft gorgeous sentences you know the only issue i take with that is actually not something with any of the writing piece that, that you just uh that read out there my only issue is that somehow that this means the death of goblin and his sacrifice didn't even make your top three 
man. Uh, yeah. Um, I do love that scene. I'd say it would be an honorable mention. Oh, um, and, and maybe maybe this is just because I've read this book so many times now. Um, the first time I read it, that would probably be you know one of, if not my favorite scene in the book. But uh, I, I have such a different That's experience a very good point. rereading and and reading it from a different perspective. Uh, as a writer now, instead of the you know the casual reader I was, um, and and having that benefit of hindsight and the things that I have learned from Glenn Cook's writing over the years, so that like it means more to me reading some of these just incredibly clever or beautiful passages where I'm where I'm pulling things from my own writing. Uh, it just means more to me now than than the the spectacle scenes, uh, and that's weird. I know. Um, uh, I'm sure I'm in the minority on some of my favorite seed picks, but but it's just that's my experience at this point. Okay, and, you know what? I'll, I'll stick I'll, by it. I'll take back a little bit of what I just said. I, I will say I'm actually glad that you said that because it does sort of really stoke me up for a future reread, a personal reread some, at some point in the future. Because if there's any scene that with future context or, or in any way that can match or even surpass what, how the death of Goblin <laughs> struck me this first time around on a reread, that's actually, that kind of excites me. So, yeah, yeah it, point well made. It, it is It is very driven by the lessons that I have taken and learned from Glenn Cook's writing being like more important to me now than reading a really exciting scene or a really powerful scene. Um, and sometimes those overlap. Sometimes I learn something from a really powerful scene, but especially in these, in the books of glittering stone, I am continually amazed by the way Glenn Cook can recycle sentences, themes, and build upon them, ultimately culminating in this just incredible ending, you know, and and that's something, I mean, I don't even have the ambition to have tried yet in my own writing, but it's something I want to try at some point. And, you know, it, it just, it amazes me. I just think, too, if you had told me back after book one that you'll be excited to do a reread in a few years, I would have been shocked. <laughs> yeah. But it's yeah. true. If you had told me that even three books ago, I'd be like, really? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. These last books it, must be really good. <laughs> but I'm thrilled about it. I, I did, um, it, you know, as Rob said, we, we were just you know, a couple weeks ago, we are you know, doing edits and, and listening back to our, our kind of like first draft of, of the bleak seasons and she's the darkness episodes. And, uh, uh, there was one point where I mentioned in she is the darkness that it was, uh, like one of, one of my least favorite books in the series. And Jared, your, your immediate response was, is your least favorite still to come? And I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> No, it's not. No. <laughs> the last two books are excellent. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cool. So, cool. I'm ready to go into the final draft. If you guys are, anything uh, else about water sleeps? Let's let's go into the final draft, and I will actually start because I have two different beers. I do. I do as well. Go ahead. 
Can't take us off. Oh, okay. So, all right, yeah, I'll go first, uh, and then Rob, and then maybe Jared, and then Rob, and then me again. Does that work? Sounds good. All right, so I am drinking first an Imperial India Pale Ale from Anchorage Brewing Company, uh, a, a brewery featured many, many times now on the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, this is a double dry hopped in, uh, India Pale Ale, 8.4%. Oh, man. Brewed with cashmere and galaxy hops. And, uh, and these are, these are two, you know, kind of newer, trendier hop strains. And, and it's delicious. This beer is super good. Probably my favorite IPA I've had from, from Anchorage so far. Um, like pure mango, just pure Ooh. mango. Mm. It's you have my tasty, tasty. But this beer goes out to several characters in this book. It is called the Sorcerer. Ooh, fitting. Okay, nice. And and I'll say, uh, I wish I had another bottle of the beer I initially brought on um, when we first recorded this. It was called Arctic Devil. Uh, it was ah. a barrel aged barley ah. wine from another Alaska brewery. You know that was for Kina. But unfortunately, it's a difficult beer to get your hands on. At least it is for me living in Colorado. So, yeah, I gotta I gotta find find some alternatives. Cool. But I think I did okay. Cool. Um, so the first beer I'm going to be featuring is the one that I did drink last week, even though I no longer have the can, nor did I drink it today. I still have the 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 brief little paragraph that I wrote about it. I wrote, mm. it's so hard to find a brew that fit thematically for the ending of Goblin and his heroic death or how emotionally impacted I was by it. Um, but I, I mean, I was, I was on a time constraint at the time when I picked out that first one that I brought on that first attempt at recording this episode. It... I ended up with a beer that stuck out to me because it just worked so well for the end of this no- like this book in general and how we leave our main cast. That was a Pilsner I was drinking that day from Four Fathers Brewing Company in Hespeler Village, Ontario. Um, I don't remember how much I liked it, but I definitely liked it. I remember that. Uh, <laughs> it, it's just the name I'm going to be giving you today of that one I drank on that episode. I was so proud of this f- name here it goes out to those that we leave in this strange peaceful lush land this is called new world that's right that's right that's a good one yes i remember really liking that one yeah yeah so i drank one called new world on the first attempt of recording this episode (laughs) i have a different one for today though that i did drink today so all right Jared. Uh, Jared. Yeah, so for this one, I had continued my tradition of a non-themed beers. And if you remember... uh, (laughs) What a rebel. If you remember on the past few, I was going through that variety pack from... uh, And so so for this one, I did uh, the Hop Not IPA. Okay. This this is from Huss Brewing Company? Yep. So this one is a West Coast style... A bunch of different hop varieties, of which I don't know what they mean. Um, but it's very orange. It's orange peel and honey, and they say there's pine in it. Um, no kidding. I can't taste it, but then again, I don't have a refined palate for that kind of thing. Well, I mean, a, a lot of, especially West Coast IPA, that style is known for hop varieties that bring out really piney flavor and hmm. bitterness. So that... that tracks at least yeah i mean i got i get the orange peel and the honey but i don't know okay cool yeah it's very good rob now if you recall drew earlier i asked you to write down a particular scene or keep to save a particular scene for 
yes. repeat right at this part of the final draft. Would you care to do so? My yes. brother totally forgiven. <laughs> Golden caverns where old men sat beside the way, frozen in time, immortal but unable to move an eyelid. Mad men they, some covered with fairy webs of ice as though a thousand winter spiders had spun threads of frozen water. Above, an enchanted forest of icicles grew downward from the cavern roof. So this is from Wellington Brewery in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. This is a strong beer. It says strong beer. It's like 6.9% ABV. This is a hazy IPA with gin botanicals, apparently. It was so good, gentlemen. It was so good. It hit... So I'll, I'll, You know what? I'm going to read the side here first before I give you the name. Hit with a fresh citrus and pine infused with a unique blend of gin botanicals. Hazy IPA with a creamy matte... Or sorry, I should say matte malt body with huge tropical hop flavors. I got those. That's what it was I was tasting. Tangerine, mango, which are in perfect balance. I will agree with that. Uh, cooling botanical blend. Juniper, lemon peel, and bitter orange peel. Carpet path to chill out with this fresh and inspired winter IPA. This is called, and I'll hold it up here, gentlemen, Big Chill. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I love it. Rob with the double header themed beers. Yes. I got a good one last week, and I feel like I nailed it this week as well. Yeah. Uh, last week, I should shabby. say, the first recording. It was like six weeks ago, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, <laughs> um, I, I, so let me let me pull up. So my second beer yeah, what are you uh, is a collaboration uh, between Weldworks Brewing Company Always in Greeley, Colorado, and Phase 3 Brewing Company in Lake Zurich, Illinois. This is a barrel-aged imperial stout. Uh, let's see. Does it actually have... I don't think it has an ABV on it. Well, it is a barrel-aged imperial stout conditioned on marshmallow, chocolate, and graham cracker. Oh, uh, my God. Aged in, uh, aged in bourbon barrels for 25 months. I think it just became aroused. <laughs> sorry, go, yeah, sorry, that was inappropriate. Continue. If if I had to guess, this is probably in the like twelve to thirteen percent range. Um, oh my goodness! It's I don't know. The, Weldworks stopped putting ABV on their. Are you required to? Stouts. That's legal. <laughs> See, yeah, I thought I thought you had to, but ever since their uh, their anniversary releases last year in twenty twenty, like April twenty twenty. Um, they haven't done ABVs on their bottles, uh, but but yeah. So this is like, uh, yeah, pure pure dessert. I mean, if you like s'mores, I do it, like this s'mores. Is, this is it. Uh, it is quite tasty. But this one goes out to Goblin and One Eye. Okay. This beer is called S'more Than a Friendship. Aww. That's adorable. That's so heartwarming. <laughs> I love it. I really love yeah. it. Yeah, I I had to, you know, I had to figure something out because I couldn't bring on another Arctic Devil. But I was, you know, I, I was going to do the Sorcerer, and I was like, you know, I'm really kind of feeling drinking a stout. 
maybe I'll just drink some random stout during the episode and then do uh, the sorcerer. And I opened my cellar and like the first thing I saw was this. And I was like, oh yeah, I can do, oh, I actually, this works. Like <laughs> I can totally do this, you know? Uh, so that was, that was a nice little uh, thing to stumble over. And, and yeah, once again, to Goblin and to One-Eye. <sighs> and their, their wonderful brotherly friendship. Rest in peace, Goblin, my man. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So nice. this has been Oh god. If if my uh my count is correct, episode one hundred four of the Inking Out Loud podcast. It is, I'm looking at the spreadsheet, yep. Uh next up we will be covering Soldiers Live, the first half of it. Uh I believe it's the first sixty two chapters. Man, it once again it's been a couple weeks since we uh, since we did that, but yeah, it's the first half of Soldiers Live. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, if you want to get early access to episodes, access to our bonus content like our monthly newsletter or original fiction written by Rob or myself, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. You know, we, we really appreciate all of our supporters there. Uh, it, it's It's what's keeping this podcast chugging along it's a big part of what got us to 100 episodes and we have many more planned for the future as always i have been your host drew mccaffrey and with me is my co-host rob santos i can hear the music sorry that's a really <laughs> lame joke it's going to be playing while this is going later <laughs> and our special guest jared livingston thanks for coming on jared the oh, anomaly yes. the one jared livingston the standard bearer <laughs> Ooh, you know, I, I'm good with standard Barry. Who knows if yeah. he gets that during Soldiers Live Parts 1 or 2. Tune in, find out. <laughs> yeah. I know that's yeah. what people are so, sticking around to find out. Uh, obviously, Jared's, Jared's titles are much more important <laughs> than anything else in this mm-hmm. episode. You need to know. So. <laughs> yeah, so as always, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, See you guys. Everyone.